Hey, you blork. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Talkin' GC, the X-Factor show. The only podcast devoted solely to the initial Peter David run of early 1990s X-Factor. I'm your host, Ryan. Today's episode is our penultimate episode in our Talkin' GC series. And today we are going to cover three full issues as well as summarize a, well, a major crossover event that encompassed three additional issues of X-Factor. So as I said, we are going to cover three full issues of X-Factor as well as summarize parts of three additional issues. So we're going to start with issue 82 and we're going to do 82 and 83, which are the first two parts of a new story arc that Peter David has been quietly laying the groundwork for. Uh, after that, we'll go ahead and summarize X-Factor's role in the early 1990s X-Men crossover event, Executioner's Song. It actually encompassed three issues of each of the major X books that were being published at the time. So three issues of X-Factor, three issues of X-Force, and then three issues each of the two X-Men series, Uncanny and Adjectiveless. And uh, I, I don't want to talk about the whole entire storyline because there's a lot of moving pieces. There's a lot of you know crossover antics where characters don't quite behave the way they usually do in their respective books because they're forced into a box of this overarching story that had already been predetermined. And I'm not a big fan of this storyline. Not that it's not good or not interesting. It's actually pretty good. And uh, it's the first major crossover in the post Chris Claremont days. So the X books, they weren't quite firing on all cylinders it didn't quite mesh together as well as like Fatal Attractions does a few years down the road, uh, but it's still pretty decent. And I like a lot of the moving parts to the story and I like parts of the whole, but I don't quite enjoy the, the overall story. And, and there's probably the biggest reason for that is it's the storyline that ultimately led to Peter David leaving X Factor uh, he did not have a great time working on an editorially mandated crossover. He didn't like having to relinquish control of his characters uh, to other writers. He didn't like working with a guest artist with whom he did not have the best rapport. There were a couple other things as well. Most of what I've just mentioned, I've been able to glean from various interviews and things, people kind of speaking about Executioner's Song retroactively, not necessarily directly from Peter David himself. So it might not all be entirely true, but it's at least how people that worked on this project felt uh, that Peter David felt coming off of, of this story arc. Although these three issues, they do lead into perhaps the best single issue of Peter David's entire run. And that is issue number 87 titled Examinations or, you know, examinations, but with the X pun where it's X dash emanations. Uh, in my opinion, the greatest single issue of, of Peter David's entire run. So I'm looking forward to today's episode. This one might be our last long episode because next week we would only have uh, three last issues to cover as well, or excuse me, two issues to cover as well as uh, Peter David's final X-Factor story 
that was published in X Factor Annual number eight. So next week should be fairly light, which uh, is why I've put most of this stuff into this episode. So this one should be the last of our long episodes. And I think we can just jump right in and get started with issue number 82. So issue 82 uh, is written by Peter David. There's guest pencils from Rurik Tyler. We have inks from Al Milgram, colors from Glennis Oliver, and letters from Richard Starkings. Not quite of Comic Craft yet, but uh, I do like the artwork in this issue. It it reminds me, ironically, uh, it's like it's almost like a, a like a little preview of uh, like a foreshadowing of what's to come because eventually. After, I want to say the next issue, I think the next issue is Larry Stroman's final issue. Maybe that was the previous issue. Uh, and then we have a couple uh, different pencilers during the Executioner's song. And then after that, starting with issue 87, Joe Quesada comes in and takes over artwork on the book, rounds out the last two issues of Peter David's run, and then carries into... Uh, the Scott Lobdell era, which is only a few issues. Um, and then also, I believe, does a lot of the artwork with J.M. DeMattis all the way up through like issue 100. Uh, so so Quesada comes in for a pretty decent chunk of time as well. And, and a lot of this artwork that we see from the guest penciler kind of reminds me a little bit of what we're going to see with Joe Quesada's art. Uh, so this issue picks up pretty much right where the last one left off with its little aside. So if you remember last issue, it was the the you know the final showdown with X Factor and Cyber and his Hell's Bells, and there was like a brief three page spread where we left X Factor and we went to this dock in like New York, and we see this like cargo ship trying to make berth in in the dock and we have like the american military as well as like nypd trying to tell the ship like you can't dock here you're not allowed to dock here and uh this storyline picks up right where that one left off and it introduces not necessarily this new group of characters but it brings these certain characters back in as well as like reintroduces an older villain team uh who is a lot more popular and, and, and demands a lot more respect than like the nasty boys early on in this run. So we're at the dock and there's this dude who seems to be like a homeless man kind of walking up to the dock and he sees the military and everything. And they're like, Hey, you know, what's going on? What, what are you doing? You know, slurring his words and everything. And the military's like, Hey dude, like get out of here. Like you're not, allowed to be on this dock and like you you have to you have to go so he starts walking away and he falls off the dock into the water and like as he's trying to swim back up to the surface we see this like green hand kind of reach up to him and the dude never makes it up to the surface he starts getting pulled back down into the water and when we turn the page we see that it is like an injured Sauron from his last battle with X-Force. He even says like Sauron was last seen in X-Force number nine. Uh, you know, one of the little editor's notes from, from Kelly Corvezzi. Uh, and 
Sauron is saying some stuff like, you know, nice try Sauron, but Sauron doesn't die as easily as Cannonball did. And he, he gets enough energy, I guess, from this guy that he's able to finally like climb up out of the water and he's hiding under this dock and he hears them talking about the mutant problem. And so he realizes there's other mutants around in this area and so he says to himself, like, oh, I've got to, uh, I've, 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 I've awakened from my regenerative state and I'm like, I'm awake again and I'm, I'm ready, uh, but I need to, I need to call my compatriots and let them know uh, that we have some possible new allies for the brotherhood. And then we, we turn the page, we see this issue is called sitting by the dock of the bay. Again, Peter David, Rourke Tyler, Al Milgram on the art here and, of course, we have Val, and I forget why she's yeah. Oh, right, yeah, because the whole Rhapsody thing, where uh, Jamie decided to stay up in Maine, up in what is it, Two Forks, Maine, uh, and and try to help exonerate uh, Rhapsody and and find some proof that she wasn't guilty. Of course, eventually he learns that she was, and so he he leaves her there, breaks his heart. It's very sad. Uh, but he and Quicksilver were able to rejoin the team for the final battle against Cyber last issue. Uh, but it doesn't mean that uh, he doesn't need to be admonished. And so he's sitting there and he's being, I don't know, not necessarily yelled at, but he's being uh, reprimanded by Val Cooper for his actions. Like you weren't authorized to stay there and try to do what you did. You ended up meddling and like, that's not okay. It's unconscionable. Uh, eventually, you know, the the things that you had done, like you're being accused of like harassing the citizens of this town. And he's like, eh, well, it wasn't my idea. It was that guy's. Cause naturally he's not just going to take this alone. He's at least created one dupe of himself. And it's worth pointing out here that one of the dupes is wearing a t-shirt that has Ren on it. And the other one is wearing a t-shirt that has Stimpy on it. So he's wearing like each of them are wearing like matching shirts with, with Ren and Stimpy which isn't the first time in this run that Peter David has referenced the old Nickelodeon cartoon, which in the early nineties, like I feel like Ren and Stimpy was slightly before my time. Like they were already pretty big by the time that I really got into my Nickelodeon days around like 94, 95. Uh, so, so Ren and Stimpy, they'd been around for quite a few years up to that point. I think like, when I was getting into Nickelodeon was maybe the first year of like Rocco's modern life. <laughs> Cause that was like my main cartoon that I watched on Nickelodeon. I, I watched a lot of, uh, are you afraid of the dark? And like a lot of guts and uh, legends of hidden temple. And man, I love Nickelodeon in the early nineties in the mid nineties. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's cool seeing the Ren and Stimpy here. Of course he's being talked to by Val Cooper and Havoc comes in uh, because Havoc is he's starting to uh, come into his own as this as this team leader. He's he's starting to take his team's well-being like onto his own shoulders and kind of being like not not a mother hen, but kind of like a den mother into his team. Like he 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 not only leads his team on the battlefield and is like a valuable member of that team, like he leads from the front, but when they're not in the field, he he looks out for his teammates, he looks out for their well-being. And he doesn't like a member of his team being reprimanded directly by the government liaison. He comes in and he's he's arguing with Val. He's like, look, if you have a problem with Jamie, you come to me and then I will relay the problem to Jamie 
and he and I will figure it out. Like I'm the team leader. I'm the person that he reports to. Therefore, I'm the person that will talk to him if there's an issue. Like we have to have that that back and forth. We have to have that face-to-face communication. And like Val at first takes offense to it, but then she's like, okay, you know, I get it. Um, in the meantime, Havoc is like, hey, you know, while I'm talking to Val, why don't the two of you shove off? And this is really interesting because the two Jamies get up and they, they you know, one of them reabsorbs back into the, the Jamie prime. But when they do that, their shirts merge. And it's actually on the next panel that both Val and Alex, like when they're kind of like arguing with each other, but eventually coming to like a, a mutual understanding of one another, uh, they're like, wait a minute, how did he do that with his shirt? Like, that's great. But then of course, before anything can really happen, the, uh, you know, the, the red government telephone rings and Val answers it. So at this point, the scene changes. We're actually taken downstairs in the X-Factor Brownstone, the, their Washington, D.C. headquarters. And there's been a, a ring at the door, you know, ding dong. And so Rain is, uh, she's she happily exclaims like, I'll get it. And she opens the door and it's Lorna. And she like freaks out in a good way. Like she's really excited that Lorna's back. Like she screams her name and she exclaims like, I thought they wouldn't release you until tomorrow. And Polaris is like, you know, she's, she's got her jaw wired shut from that, you know, the punch that she took from cyber. And so she's kind of, she's not necessarily whispering, but she's speaking very quietly and not moving her jaw very much because it's wired in place and everything. And uh, she's like, yeah, you know, I just I couldn't stay cooped up in the hospital any longer. Not when everything's fine, except I just need to keep my jaw in place. She's like, which I have no problems doing magnetically, like keeping all the headgear in place. I could do that magnetically. Not a problem. And, uh, you know, Rain gives her like a big hug and she just says, like, it's it's good that you've come back. And Polaris is shocked. She's like, you're actually glad to see me. And Rain kind of plays it off like, well, you know, if, if you're back, then Alex will be happy. And if Alex is happy, then I'm happy. But really, I think at this point, it's, she's starting to respect Lorna, but she's also starting to like Lorna. Like when Lorna put herself on the line for Cannonball, like when she kind of stood up to Alex about Cannonball and like didn't arrest him on sight because she knew that it was important to Rain. Like I think at that point, Rain realizes like Lorna is a friend. She she really does care about me, even if we've kind of been, you know, opposing one another when it comes to Alex, you know, we've kind of been catty towards each other. The, you know, the, those first early issues, they're, they're starting to realize that they can be friends. And, you know, more than that, like they can be a found family together. I think that's really what we're seeing here in this scene, it's not just that she's happy that Alex is going to be happy. Like, I think she's genuinely happy to see her friend Lorna back from the hospital, especially because they've just started to become close with one another. Meanwhile, at a various courthouse in Washington, D.C., uh, Marilyn Maycroft, a.k.a. Shrew, from uh, formerly of the Hell's Bells, has given testimony that has... Uh, well, it's caused the downfall of this particular cartel and uh, Guido is there to like escort her out and everything, you know, kind of make sure that she's not attacked while she's on the stand. And she comes out and, and she's like, well, that was that. Like, it was good knowing you, Guido. Uh, she mentions at one point, she calls him a uh, strong guy. 
And she's like, that's a dumb name. And he's like, my real name is Guido. And she's like, that's even dumber. What's your last name? And he's like, Caracella. <laughs> so she gives him like a kiss on the cheek. And she's like, you know, you're a really nice guy, Caracella. Take care of yourself. And she kind of walks out. And Guido's like, all right, there we go. Like, that was that. Uh, and we're taken back to the ship one more time. And it turns out that the people on this ship are the uh, expatriates from the extinction agenda. So this is a group of like mutate refugees who managed to escape Genosha during the whole extinction agenda storyline. And uh, it's a small group. There's like seven or eight of them, I think, on this like large ship. And they're talking to, I'm not sure if they're talking to a lawyer or or a politician or, or a member of like the, the FBI or like immigration or something. His name's Mr. Coswell. And pretty much he's explaining to these refugees that like economically speaking, the United States is not ready to accept refugees from Genosha. He fills them in on what happened during the extinction agenda that, that Genosha is no longer a dangerous place for mutates. That in fact, the government is very pro mutate and is trying to make amends with the mutates, providing them with places to live and providing them with jobs and that sort of thing. And he's trying to encourage these people to turn back and head to Genosha. And they're like, yeah, like we can take your word for it. But if you're lying to us, like we're just going to be, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire. Like we've already escaped that once. We're not going to return to that, not willingly at least. And uh, at this point, uh, a couple of the different uh, mutates or expatriates are kind of getting in Coswell's face. One of them has the power, it looks like, to shift into some sort of like a three-headed hydra beast looking thing. Um, and, and he tells, he like gets in uh, Mr. Coswell's face and he's yelling at him. And he's like, there, and he's telling them like, you're wasting your time. Uh, you need to leave and you can either leave voluntarily or we'll throw you off the ship into the harbor or the bay or, or whatever it is. Um, and the dude gets, you know, he's all scared of the mutants and he runs away and he's admonished by the leader who I believe is named prodigy. I think we'll, we'll get to the names here in a minute, but like, as they're talking as like they're as, as most of these mutates are like telling the one dude, like, Hey, that wasn't cool, man. Like, we're trying to live here. Like, let's not scare everybody and make everybody think that we're aggressive and bad. Like, let's just go about our business. But at that point, they they start hearing like this ruckus from outside, this, this commotion. There's like an explosion and everything. And a bunch of them run out to like the deck of the ship. And they're like, what the heck's happening? And oh, the guy's name is Prodigal, not Prodigy. So Prodigal. And he seems to be like the leader of the expatriates, these, these this group of mutates. So they run outside and they see the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Um, at one point, uh, they see like an explosion, like one of the military jeeps, it looks like, gets like just destroyed, like ex explodes and everything. And Toad is standing there and he's like, greetings, my dear friends. Welcome to the USA. I am the Toad here to inform you that the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants wants you. And, and prodigal's like, um, do you really think it's a, like a, a, a good sales pitch to try to recruit us to a group that openly has the word evil in its title? And so toad tries to explain to them like, oh no, like we use that as a caricature, uh, 
you know, the humans see us that way. They, they see us as these frightening evil characters. So we've adopted the word evil as like a caricature. Like they want to be afraid of us. Like we'll give them something to be afraid of, but we're doing it in the name of mutants. Like we're not actually evil. Like we're just trying to, you know, make sure that mutants have, have what they have. <laughs> he pretty much is like, you know, there's like a million different protected classes in the U S and like being a mutant, isn't one of those protected classes. He's like, so, you know, it's, it's, we're like this, this caricature, it's, it's sarcastic that we're using that it's an oxymoron to use the phrase brotherhood and evil uh, in the same sentence. And then from off panel, uh, someone actually comments on that last line you hear, uh, cause Toad says, you know, it's, it's, you know, what two words could possibly be more of an oxymoron than brotherhood and evil. And someone off panel says, how about Toad and leader? Although the reference to moron is about right. And Toad looks off panel and he looks shocked and he just says like you, and we turn the page and we see like Quicksilver has arrived. And obviously Quicksilver and Toad long, long, maybe not long time, but like former teammates on the original brotherhood of evil mutants that was put together by magneto all the way back in uncanny x-men number four like the original the x-men number four way back in what 1964 so they have a long history together like a very long history and uh quicksilver does say like you know it's i guess it's it's worth noting that you've come a long way from just being magneto's lackey but like, you know, once a lackey, always a lackey. I don't really take you seriously. <laughs> and then all of a sudden flying through the air comes Blob and he's yelling at uh, at Quicksilver. He yells like, get over here, you silver haired simp. And Quicksilver's like, seriously, dude, like you're going to yell at me as you're flying slowly through the air. Like he breaks no sweat getting out of the way, easily dodges Blob who, who lands prone uh, on the ground. Cause he's like doing, trying to like belly flop on Quicksilver and then Quicksilver grabs Toad and like, he's running him towards the bay. He dodges Sauron and everything. And then he gets him to the edge of the dock and he just like punches him into the water. And then he starts dodging. Like he's literally just running around and dodging from everybody. He's like, he's dodged toad he's just dodged blob now he's dodging pyro uh and finally someone gets him because he, he he's dodging pyro and he stops and someone like freezes him with this weird like pinkish ray and as he's being like held in place he's like paralyzed uh toad has recovered and he's like trying to jump kick quicksilver and he does so he ends up kicking quicksilver it looks like they're actually standing up on the ship on the deck of the ship uh, and he knocks quicksilver and quicksilver falls all the way down onto the dock but before the brotherhood is able to attack him again while he's down we see this character the one that froze him is a, is a new member of the brotherhood named fantasia and i think she was introduced with the brotherhood in in early x-force as well I don't think this issue is her first appearance. I want to say it was also, you know, when, when Sauron fought against like cannibal back in, in early X-Force um, that we were introduced to Fantasia at that time. I'm not really quite sure exactly what her powers are. They're not really explained in this issue, but she seems to have 
maybe like some sort of telekinesis or like an illusory power or some sort of like a stasis field that she's able to extend either way she like freezes quicksilver in a way uh, but we don't really see more of what she can do before like i said before her and toad are able to like hit quicksilver again she's blasted by a bubble beam and the rest of x factor has arrived so now we have uh, havoc and strong guy wolfsbane polaris and multiple man on scene and uh toad was yelling at quicksilver like oh you fool like blob and i were just the you know advanced team and fantasia was here to fight off anyone that arrived and x and havoc is pretty much saying the same thing he's like yeah you idiot like that's what quicksilver was for us waiting until um, everyone had been drawn out so now we're here to to nail you to the wall uh, so we have havoc blasting blob which doesn't really slow him down too much so blob and strong guy decide to face off one another of course blob like immediately sends strong guy flying through the air he calls him a steroid cupid doll which i love um, and then wolfsbane is about to attack blob but she's actually grabbed by sauron and like flown up into the sky and so polaris like immediately goes after rain to protect her and she's like trying to yell up to her she can't really yell because of her mouth being wired shut so she just kind of tries to like hit them with a, a magnetic blast um in the meantime like the expatriates are like we've got to join the fight and help them and prodigal's like help who like the guys all the guys with the x on them seem to be pretty legit and these other guys like yeah they make a good point but they still have the word evil in their name so let's why don't we stand back and see which side is actually the good guy side so next up so next up we see havoc and uh, he's about to go help quicksilver when suddenly he is engulfed with flames he, he can't see through the flames he's trying to contact polaris on his intercom and we see that toad finally you know all the rest of uh, x factor are uh, you know it's they seem to be indisposed so toad jumps up onto like quicksilver's back and he's like you know i've uh i've got these secretions that i can do and uh i'll, I'll go ahead and you know secrete your mouth shut um and uh before he's able to do that they had forgotten about multiple man so multiple man comes over and he grabs him and uh toad's like you're a fool like how dare you get between me and my prey like i'll teach you but good and uh <laughs> multiple man's just like oh you're a teacher great well i've got an entire class and and toad's like what and he looks around and there's like seven multiple man dupes just like running at him about to grab him and everything <laughs> which is pretty good um, at one point, Toad yells like, who are you? And he's like, multiple man, can't you tell? And then another one of the dupes is like, I've got a multiplication sign on my head. Because <laughs> in his costume, he wears a big X right on his forehead. It's great. So we go back to the uh, the cannonball. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm reading the word cannonball. We go back to the Sauron and Wolfsbane event. So Sauron is, is holding Wolfsbane. He's like flying up into the sky with her luckily he hasn't been able to 
like hypnotize her yet. And he, he tells her, he's like, I'll just rip you apart. Like I did that obnoxious cannonball from X-Force. And she gets, she has this shocked look on her face and she's like, you killed Sam. And she like turns into almost like a full, like werewolf form. So it's not just her hybrid form anymore. It's like an advanced hybrid form where she looks more lupine than human, but she's still like a humanoid. And she like bites Sauron on the neck. And he, all he can do is like rip her off of him and just like throw her into the sky. Um, and as she's falling, like Polaris has caught up, she manages to like blast Sauron with a magnetic blast, send him flying. And she goes to try to rescue rain but like rain has kind of lost control of herself and she actually like lashes out and accidentally hurts lorna like kind of hits her in the face and it's enough that uh rain goes like plummeting into the bay and it's at that time that she she hears alex on the intercom and she's like hang on alex i, I hear you in the fire but I, I can't see you and so he blasts like a ring up from inside the fire and so then she knows exactly where he is and she's able to use like a magnetic blast that she like ricochets off of like Fantasia who has somewhat of like a metal piece on her costume. And she's able to like ricochet this blast into Pyro. The, the blast knocks Pyro out, which uh, douses the flame. Havoc is able to get out. But before he goes very far, he uh, runs into the blob. The blob's about to kind of jump on him, you know, belly flop on him. And all of a sudden the the bay, or I, not the bay, but like the dock underneath the blob starts to shake and rumble. And eventually it like crashes out from under him and he ends up falling down into the bay. And we see that it was Strong Guy. Like Strong Guy had been like smashing his way up through the the bottom of the dock and uh, he's able to to knock blob out and then as he's looking uh he rain comes jumping up out of the bay and so he's able to like grab on to her and, and she's like feeling super remorseful again where she's like it I, I did it again like i swore i i wouldn't you know but he said he killed sam and it happened again it's it's gonna keep happening and Guido's like, hey, hey, calm down, kid. Like, I don't know what it is, but like, it, it can't have been that bad. You're one of the good guys. Um, and so we we check back in with the Brotherhood at this point. Uh, Toad is like, Brotherhood now. Well, X-Factor is all together. Attack. And he nothing happens. And he's like, Brotherhood? And so multiple man's like, why don't you turn around, Toadster, and say goodnight? And the Toad's like, huh? And he turns around and Quicksilver is there now. And he just punches Toad in the face and knocks him out. <laughs> and like that's that like they make quick work of the brotherhood the brotherhood is all you know handcuffed or whatever and taken in and it's at that point the prodigal and the expatriates come down from the ship and uh he's like you know what may i ask are are your intentions you know is, is this how mutants treat one another here in in the u.s and havoc is like no uh, first of all, like there's, there's nothing wrong in Genosha. What you heard is correct. Genosha is rebuilding and, uh, you know, the, the gene engineer and Hodge, they're no longer in power in Genosha. Like there's a new mutate friendly regime in power there. 
Um, and, and also like where the good guys, the brotherhood is in fact the bad guys. Um, and so they're like, all right, well, I guess we don't have to like run away from Genosha anymore. And Alex is just says like, that's right. Like you don't have to run away. Like you can go home and, and be free. And he's like, and if it, if it, if it'll, if it'll put your mind at ease, if it'll make you feel better, we'll all go to Genosha with you. And Quicksilver's like, us go to Genosha? Surely you're joking. And like Polaris just whispers in, in Quicksilver's ear, like, he's not joking. And multiple man without missing a beat's like, and don't call him Shirley. And that's the end of issue number 82. It says next, expatriates, exiles, and X-Force. So next up we have X-Factor issue number 83. On the cover here it says Genosian Legacy. And when we open it up, we see that uh, the issue is titled Painting the Town. So this issue written by Peter David, pencils from Mark Pacella, inks from Al Milgram, colors by Glennis Oliver, letters from Richard Starkins. And this first page, like it starts off with a bang. This first page we see like this monster face. It's snarling at us. There's snot in the nostrils. There's saliva and whatnot dripping from the teeth and tongue it's really ugly really scary looking it says will you people get out of my face and uh we see they're at the dock still and uh you know we see the outline of a bunch of people that are running away from the scary looking monster thing and then after the people run away the monster thing turns back into the genosian refugee named lucas and uh, one of the other Genosian refugees, a woman named Joe Beth is, is asking him like, you know, did you really have to do that? Like we're trying to, you know, be granted like immunity, be, be granted, you know, status as a refugee here. And like you scaring them away, uh, really doesn't bode well for that. And he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm tired of all these reporters in my face asking me questions and all that. Um, and as he's like yelling at Joe Beth, uh, he's interrupted by another person who is uh, well, a couple people who are uh, also Genosian expatriates. It is Jenny Ransom and Philip Moreau. And uh, she she tells Lucas and Joe Beth that she is from the Genosian Aware Awareness League and that she is also a refugee from Genosha, that she was granted asylum by the US and the guy's like, well, you know, why are they giving us so much guff if they've given you asylum? And she's like, well, you know, things have changed for one, like Genosha is in fact, you know, like a free nation again. And, you know, we mutates are not, um, you know, persecuted as we had been. And she's like, that's, that's one of the reasons. Um, another reason is, you know, frankly, the U.S., uh, they were all happy to take us in when it seemed like it was a humanitarian thing. Uh, but now that that's not the case any longer, that, uh, you know, things have changed. Of course, she actually introduces herself like at the end of this whole conversation. And when uh, Lucas hears the name Moreau, he gets super angry. Um, and that's because Philip Moreau is actually the son of the former Genosian gene engineer, who was the one that did all of these experiments and pretty much was the right hand to Cameron Hodge back during the whole extinction agenda thing. 
Uh, but before we see what happens there, we're taken back onto the ship and like into the cargo hold where we, we see that it's not just these like four or five people that we've seen so far, that the ship itself is actually full of refugees, maybe 10, 15 former mutate refugees from Genosha, not just the, like I said, the group of like four or five that we've seen so far. And we actually go and check in. We see that Rain is like walking through the ranks and kind of like taking stock of who all is there. And she suddenly sees Sauron like flying through the sky. And so she immediately attacks him. She jumps up and like punches him. And he just shatters into all these like flaming pieces. Uh, and, and she's like, wait a second, this doesn't smell right. And one of the Genosian mutates comes running over and he's like, oh, well, that was bloody brilliant. Like you've destroyed my cold fire sculpture. And she's like, hang on, you you make these things? And he's like, yeah, I, I do. And, and Rain realizes that uh, he has an accent. So she sits down. She's like, where are you from? Who are you? Know, who are you? Where are you from? And he's like, you know, my name's Taylor. I'm originally from Glasgow. And, uh, you know, now I'm a mutate. And uh, Rain, like, is immediately taken with him. Like, he's another, not only is he uh, another mutate, uh, but he's also another Scotsman. And uh, so that, uh, that, you know, which, of course, Rain is is from Scotland as well. So she's already found, like, this kindred spirit. Uh, at, At this point, we actually go check in with the various leaders. We see Prodigal and Val Cooper and uh, some dude that works for immigration. I think his name's Coswell. I think we f- we figure that out a little bit later when Val's yelling at him and everything. Um, but they're they're all trying. They're all like discussing what to do, whether or not they can stay in the United States, or if they need to go back to Genosha, or if they can be sent somewhere else. And Quicksilver and Havoc both seem to be taking this situation. Uh, very, very seriously, Havoc, especially with his ties to the former Genosian regime that was in power there during all the persecution and creation of the mutates under Cameron Hodge and the Gene Engineer. Uh, so he's pretty fired up about everything. Uh, but before they can really come to any sort of uh, solution, they hear a, a commotion out on the dock, you know, screaming and yelling and and all of that. So they, they run out to the dock and we see like Cameron Hodge in his like full on like phalanx form is like on the dock. He's going berserk. He's attacking Philip Moreau and Jenny Ransom. And he's also attacking like a bunch of the multiple men, multiples and, and Guido. And we don't really know what's going on. Um, at one point, like Joe Beth hits Cameron Hodge with this like blast of uh it looks like her power is like she's able to create cyclone things or or maybe she's able to like spin really fast and so she she creates a cyclone it's actually later on in the issue we find out that her name is pirouette um, although i believe that she had already been established back during the extinction agenda anyway either way she she hits him with this kind of like a blast or a beam and we find out that no it's not actually cameron hodge it's lucas again um, only this time, instead of being like a big green monster, he's turned himself into Cameron Hodge. And he's like, no, you know, this is the this is the son of uh, of of the Gene Engineer. And like, I owe retribution 
um, against the gene engineer and like, I'll have to take you know, the, the next best thing, which is on, on this guy. Uh, but at that point, like havoc comes down and he hits Lucas again, this time with a plasma blast uh, and he catches Philip. Of course, um, a prodigal comes over to Lucas and he's like, Hey man, are you hurt? And he's like, yeah. And uh prodigal's like, good. Uh, now apologize to the young man. And, and, Lucas is like, oh, heck no, I'm not apologizing to some Moreau spawn. And and Philip Moreau's like, yeah, look, I get it. Like, my dad is is a terrible person and and you're trying to to strike out at the most convenient target. I, I totally understand. Um, but Prodigal's like, no, that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. That's not okay. You know, he he can't be held accountable for the sins of his father. Uh and then he he suggests like perhaps we could at least, you know, come in. And, and maybe if we got like a change of scenery, we wouldn't have emotions running so high. Um, and like Havoc and Multiple Man are both like, hey, that sounds good to me. And and Val's like, no way, like we can't let them in. Um, and then uh, the one the, the one immigration dude comes in. He's like, you know, that's your Val's right. Like we can't let these people in. It's not OK. Like we can't just let them leave the dock like they don't have passports. They don't have. They don't have anything like they're here illegally and and we don't have any room for it and <laughs> havoc pretty much just says like you're both humans we're mutants and mutates what are you gonna do like if we leave them here on the boat like words eventually gonna get out that they're in the country anyway like just let us escort them somewhere nice and like we'll vouch for them and val's like um no way and Havoc's like, look, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. Like, you could just give us permission and we'll watch these people. Or you can say no and we'll just use our powers, get past you and do it anyway. And so Val's like, all right, fine. Like, we'll stand aside. But if anything goes wrong, like, it's you, not me, who takes the heat. Havoc says, that's fine with me. And so... uh yeah, they all just kind of split off. Uh, Guido offers to take Joe Beth dancing. He's like, someone who can spin like that must really like dancing. And she's like, you bet. Uh, Rain tell, uh, takes Taylor in. She's like, I have just the place to take you. It's a it's an art museum, and I'm sure you'll love it as someone who, who makes art. Um, Havoc and Polaris are asking Prodigal, like, okay, where do you want to go? And he's like, uh, there's something very specific I'd like to see. Please take me there. Quicksilver, I guess, kind of uh, maybe not necessarily feel sorry, but at least is able to empathize with Lucas, who seems to be, you know, a pretty haughty dude. And Quicksilver's like, I'll tell you what, like, uh, let's let's go somewhere together. I've got a place to show you and you can tell me all about your pain. Uh, and And Lucas is like, yeah, I could tell that we're also kindred spirits like you and i we both realize that you know the world's a terrible place let's go complain about it together and uh, multiple man kind of volunteers to take the rest of the mutates somewhere that they're really going to enjoy as well um, after that nice little scene it says elsewhere and uh, we're introduced to this new character he's wearing like a yellow bodysuit that says you know number one fan on his chest he doesn't seem to have hands anymore. He's got like at the end of each of his arms, he's just got like these giant propeller things. 
like uh like you would expect him to be like propeller pan, uh propeller man from mega man slurring my words over here it's only midday when i'm recording this so i don't know what's going on <laughs> Um, but he, he's, you know, he's kind of going on this monologue. He says here in my absolutely impenetrable lab, I've completed the transformation that will enable me to walk the earth as one of the greatest scourges mutant kind has ever known to avenge the death of my bri my big brother, Vic. I who worshipped him will let mutants know they must face my wrath for I am no longer merely professor Rick Chalker. I am now number one fan. So this is the brother of, you know, the, the last idiot that we saw that was like, I'm going to be the scourge of mutants, that Vic Chalker guy who uh, <laughs> forgot to uh, waterproof his suit and went outside in the rain and was electrocuted and died in his own suit. So now we see his brother. He walks up to the door of his lab where he's created these propeller hands and realizes that he can't actually push the button to open the door because he no longer has hands. And his propeller appendages are too big and bulky to actually fit into like the recessed cavity where the door opening button is. And um, he he's yelling like, oh my gosh, I, I made my, my fortress so impenetrable that I can't even open the door and get out. Um, and I can't just like break through the wall because you know, this, this fortress is impenetrable. I, I can't believe I'm stuck in here. I'm such an idiot. And he goes to smack himself on the forehead. And uh, that's the end of Professor Rick Chalker. We actually have a little page with like a, a like a, a management note that says for the benefit of younger readers and faint hearted stockholders, we are refraining from explicitly showing that the now late Professor Rick Chalker angrily slapped his forehead forgetting he had no hands, but instead razor sharp blades. Sorry, gore lovers. Thank you, the management. So uh, that is the uh, introduction and death of number one fan, aka Professor Rick Chalker, brother of the late Vic Chalker. <laughs> Oh man. So we change scenes again and we get one of our few like narration boxes from Peter David. And so this one says, and now for something more pleasant. And we see the multiple man and all of his multiples have taken uh, all the various mutates to uh, a park. And so like one of his dupes is pushing a guy on a swing. Another is like catching a dude who's going down a slide. Another is like spinning someone fast on a merry-go-round and he's left one dupe like over in the corner, just like overseeing everything. So each of the mutates is like one-on-one -on -one with um, a dupe, but then there's another dupe watching. It's at that point that the main Jamie starts hearing this music and he's, he's taken aback. He looks over, uh, but he sees that it's just um, like a street performer uh, is playing the music. So he throws some, some coins into the guy's can, um, and then sheds a, a quiet tear by himself. Uh, the scene then changes and we check in with Quicksilver and Lucas of the expatriates. And we see that, uh, they've, they've gone to a bar and they're just, uh, trying to have a grand old time drinking, um, like a bald kind of older, like bigot dude comes over and he's like trying to start some trouble. So, Quicksilver's like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, let's uh, let's have a drinking contest, and whoever loses 
pays for the next round. What do you say? And he, uh, he purposely loses to the guy and tells him, you know, Hey gentlemen, next round's on me. Don't worry about it. Uh, and so he kind of diffuses the situation. Uh, we next check in with rain and at least, uh, another one of Jamie's dupes and they are at an art museum. It's the, uh, metropolitan museum of art here in DC. And so, or New York, maybe, Either way, uh, she's there and uh, she's with Taylor. And like I said, she's with one of the dupes. She's kind of talking to, and I don't know if this is actually a dupe or if it's the main Jamie, because this one has his trench, his, like his green trench coat on. So so maybe this is the main one and all the ones at the park are dupes, even the one that heard the music. Uh, but she's, Rain's talking to Jamie and she's like, look, I know you're only here to uh, be a babysitter, but like, I don't need a babysitter. We're just looking at art together. It's great. Um, and then they realize that, uh, Taylor's gone and, and she's like, Hey, uh, like darn it, Jamie, you distracted me. And like, now I can't find Taylor. Like we've, we've got to find him fast. We can't just let him wander around. At this point, we check in with, uh, Havoc and Polaris and Prodigal. And we see that uh, Prodigal wanted to go to the Statue of Liberty. He wanted to climb up into Lady Liberty and look out on onto America. And like, you know, it's this breathtaking view and he's, he's having a great time. Uh, we get a little joke because Lorna's looking around and she's like, where's Alex? And we cut to Havoc and he's like winded walking up all these stairs. He's, he's huffing and puffing. He's like, man, I hate these stairs. Uh, and then the last group that we check in with is Guido and Joe Beth, who have found a club and they're dancing together. They're cutting a rug, having a great time. And there's all these lyrics on here. Um, but I love this little reference because it's a, I'm not going to do the whole thing, but at the very end, it's uh it says when you start doing the mutant rap and then it's like, go mutant, go mutant, go, uh, which I just, I, yeah, I love that. <laughs> like as a big TMNT fan, and like how much I love the ninja rap from Secret of the Ooze. Like this little reference is great. Uh, at one point, like Pirouette is even dancing so fast that she begins spinning out of control and like knocks a bunch of stuff over her and everything. Um, yeah, so she's she's having a great time cutting a rug there with Guido. We go back to Quicksilver and Lucas. They're They're done with their round. They're heading out. And the one guy is like, hey, you know, you guys have been such a great sport and you've paid for all these rounds. Like the least I can do is is pay for, you know, one one round. And they're like, sure. So he pulls out his wallet and realizes that all of the cash is gone from his wallet. And he's like, where the heck's my money? And Quicksilver's like, I spent it like I used my super speed. I took your wallet. I took all the cash out. I put your wallet back in. You've been paying for drinks all night, bud. Um, and the guy's like, how dare you get back here? And uh, so Quicksilver just grabs Lucas and they head off at super speed. Lucas is like, that was nasty, petty and vindictive. And I loved every minute of it. So, you know, they're, they're also kindred spirits, definitely cut from the same cloth. Uh, and then the waitress comes over and she's talking to the bald guy. She's like, Hey pal, you know, it's a uh, 58 bucks for the round you just bought. <laughs> and the guy's like, can I write you a check? Um, at this point, we go and, and we see what Taylor is up to. He's left the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and he's just hanging out in this park right outside. Uh, and they, they say Central Park, so I'm guessing it's it's New York. I guess the Metropolitan Museum of Art would be the Met, right? Like, I've not been to New York. I'm not a very cultured American myself, so 
Um, <laughs> don't hold it against me that I, I don't know all the New York landmarks. Um, so he's in Central Park and he's using his his mutate ability. I don't know if mutant ability is the right word, uh, but his ability is like he can he creates this like cold fire from his hands that he's then able to like mold this fire into like statues. Um, so he's he's building a statue thing here in the park. Of course, it looks like regular fire, even though it's cold and doesn't actually ignite things. Um, but a bunch of the other people in the park are starting to freak out. They're like, dude, you can't have like a flame here. You're going to set the whole park on fire and burn everything down. The dude's like, ah, relax. Like this isn't, it's, this is cold fire. It's not going to burn anything down. And they're like, Hey, wait a minute. You're one of the, you know, mutant trash. Like you got to get out of here. This isn't okay. And he's like, yeah, no, I was told that, uh, you know, I don't have to leave. This is America, the land of, of freedom and opportunity. And so like, the he some bully guy comes up and like pushes him and yells leave and, and he he pushes him back and so one of these guys pulls out a baseball bat and they assault him like they they hit him with the bat four or five times they've knocked him to the ground like they are full-on assaulting taylor when rain and uh, a bunch of dupes finally arrive on the scene and like rain scares all these guys away uh, and they're like, uh, quick, you know, call an ambulance, like don't move them or anything like call an ambulance. And, uh, and, and rain is just kind of there trying to, to like hover over Taylor's body as he's pretty much laying here unconscious. Um, and she's just saying like, you know, keep him warm. Oh dear God, Taylor, no. And she's crying and the issue ends. It says, you know, next the executioner's song, uh, you must read uncanny X-Men 294 before joining us here next month. So, uh, at this point, we're not going to go through issue by issue and cover even the three X Factor issues of Executioner's Song because the way the crossover worked is like each issue kind of works with different teams. The teams kind of all split apart and reform with different characters. So the next three issues of X Factor, even though it's X Factor, and it, it starts off with us covering X Factor um, as they get pulled into the crossover. Uh, we actually see like the teams kind of split off and like merge. So we might follow Guido and Rain, but then we also have like Cannonball and like Storm and Bishop and like Feral. So it's not really actually X Factor. It's they kind of all just split up and do a thing. So we'll do a quick like rundown of what the arc was and, and what it entailed. Uh, but we're not going to cover those particular issues, especially like what I um, discussed like at the beginning of the episode, like Peter David did not have an enjoyable time. Um, it was a an unenjoyable time <laughs> for Peter David working on the editorially mandated crossover and his experience working on the crossover is like the main driving factor on why he leaves the book. So I don't really want to have to cover the things that he was forced to do that, that led him uh, away from the book. So uh, we'll do a quick recap of the arc itself, and then we'll just cover X Factor number 87, which is called Examinations. So Executioner's Song was the first major crossover since not just Chris Claremont left, but since all the other ex artists left, right? Like, so at, in, in mid 1992, at some point in 1992, Jim Lee, Wills Portacio and Rob Liefeld all left the various X books that they were working on. 
which was uh, uncanny and adjectiveless and X-Force. So they left those books. They kind of scrambled to find new artists to fill in on those books as well as new writers. Because when Chris Claremont left the two X books, then the, and when Louise Simonson left New Mutants, the plotting of the, of the stories, you know, the, the story itself was left to Lee and Portacio and Liefeld and guys like Fabian de Cieza and, and John Byrne were brought in to like script the books. So the plots were, were determined by the artists and then the artists would go draw the books and these new guys would kind of come in and write a script trying to figure out a way to tell that story through dialogue and narration uh, when the when the artwork didn't really quite tell the story the way it needed to. Uh, and so by, by mid-1992, all of these artists were gone. There were new artists that were coming in, like guys like Adam and Andy Cooper. Oh, uh, Mark Silvestri had also left. Uh, he was the, the artist on, on the Wolverine ongoing, and he had also left. Uh, but new artists were, were brought in, guys like Jay Lee, guys like Larry Stroman and Joe Quesada and Mark Pacella and all kinds of guys. Uh, Panosian, I think, Dan Panosian, all kinds of guys were brought in to do artwork. And there was a time when like the X books were in a, a period of flux. You know, the, the X books have this reputation of being really bad in the 90s. And I think that gets overblown. Um, the, the writers that had come in to do the scripting ended up staying on their various books and started doing both the plot and the scripting uh, moving forward. And eventually they started to gel, not just with each other, but with the artists who were eventually assigned to their books and stuck around long-term guys like Scott Lobdell working with both Andy Kubert and Joe Mad on uh, Adjectiveless and Uncanny X-Men, guys like Fabian Nicieza working with uh, Greg Capullo, and then I think eventually Tony Daniel came in um, to do artwork for X-Force for, for quite a while. Um, and then I think like Terry Shoemaker as well did some work um, with along with uh, Fabian Nicieza. So it, it didn't take long, at least in my opinion, maybe six months, maybe a year, before the books like re-solidified. And, and yeah, if you look at the early crossovers like Executioner's Song and Fatal Attractions and even Legion Quest to a degree, they don't, and Phalanx Covenant, of course, they don't quite hold up as well to the, the first few crossovers that were done by Chris Claremont. You know, Extinction Agenda by uh, Claremont and um, Louise Simonson, uh, Fall of the Mutants was was like a pseudo crossover. Same with like Mutant Massacre. Uh, they don't really hold a candle to the Inferno crossover either. Um, but like by the time they get to Age of Apocalypse and even through Onslaught, like the the 90s X-Books became good again. You know, as they, they became like a superhero soap opera. They had through lines, you know, each... Each year there was a story that was worked towards and the, the books themselves like all kind of fit that and they explored different characters rather than bringing in this new 
wave and this new influx of all these brand new characters, uh, they they generally worked with the characters that fans love. Like if you look at Scott Lobdell and his contribution to X-Men, he created quite a few characters and he worked on a lot of different X books. Uh, he worked on X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, wrote both of them for a long time. Uh, he also wrote like Generation X. Uh, he, he also um, launched Sunfire and Big Hero 6. Uh, as well as was like you know the main the main guy writing a lot of the the big crossovers, Fatal Attractions and uh, Legion Quest, Age of Apocalypse, Onslaught, Operation Zero Tolerance. Like he was the driving writer behind a lot of those stories, and I actually like quite a few of those stories. I like a lot of the character work that was done, character work with Psylocke and Wolverine, with Cyclops and Jean even stuff with Bishop, like there's a lot of really interesting stuff with Bishop and with Beast that goes down, uh, as well as a lot of stuff with Archangel eventually uh, losing the steel on his wings and having his feathered wings had, had have grown, uh, grown back, as well as like introducing some cool villains and finally putting a pin in the whole Great and Creed stuff. Like there really were some good storylines that came out of the mid nineties and, and yeah, the late nineties, just like the early nineties was another period of upheaval. Eventually by the late nineties, like around 97, Scott Lobdell had left the X books and they were taken over by, um, I forget the writer's name, Siegel. And, uh, the, the quality started going down again. A lot of the artists were leaving, uh, again, you know, the, the Kuberts and, and all that were kind of off the books by that point. And outside of like Wolverine's solo ongoing, a lot of the other X books had lost a lot of steam. X Force, both of the X Men books, even the Excalibur series had, had like come to an unceremonious end. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's the the '90s were definitely up and were definitely an up and down decade. But the Executioner's song kind of ushered in an era where it was starting. Things were starting to go up again. So Executioner's Song itself, not necessarily the best storyline, but it was a portent of things to come. So you're probably wondering like, all right, dude, I thought we were going to talk about Executioner's Song and instead you talked about 90s X-Men for like seven minutes. Um, So Executioner's Song was mostly a story about strife. It was actually marketed as the story that will finally reveal the mysterious origin of Cable. We knew that he was a time traveler. We knew that he was from the future, but we also knew that he had spent time in the past with Six Pack, thanks to various storylines in the cave in uh, a few of the cable minis. I think that had come out by that point. I don't know if he had his ongoing yet. I think at this point he had like Cable Blood and Metal, which was like a two issue miniseries. Uh, maybe there was one other, like there was another Cable miniseries. It was like four issues or something that that showed uh, his time in the future. Uh, but then also a few things that showed his time in the past as a mercenary with the mercenary team, Six Pack. But we still didn't know his origin. We didn't really know who Cable is. We didn't know how he got in the future or why he came back to the past, why he uh, specifically like sought out the new mutants and, and molded them into X-Force. We didn't really know a whole lot of that. And this story was supposed to be the story that fleshed out his origin. Uh, the story itself, uh, Lila Cheney is back on Earth. She's putting on like a, a diversity 
encouraging concert, you know, like one of these things where it's like, Hey, things have been pretty bad for mutants, but like, we're not all that bad. Let come, come to this concert. It'll be this peaceful, you know, free love kind of thing. Like, you know, the summer of love, 1967, like we're going to kick off a new summer of love here in, in, you know, central park for mutants. And she invited Xavier to come give a speech. And while he's giving the speech, there is an assassination attempt made on his life. And it looks like the this would-be assassin is Cable. Like, he walks up, he pulls out his futuristic firearm and blasts away. Xavier doesn't die. He's rushed to the hospital where members of X-Factor are, like, standing by because they are there based on the, the last issue that we covered, which ended up with that brutal attack on Taylor, the mutate refugee from Genosha. So they're there, and that's where X-Factor is. Um, at that point, like Val Cooper comes in, I believe that Bishop and Storm come in and they head off and then the blue strike force comes in and everyone finds out that it was Cable or at least someone who looks exactly like Cable that, uh, tried to do, uh, tried to, to do this assassination on Xavier. And so X factor and the X-Men blue team then head out to find X-Force and bring them in. Of course they do run into them. Uh, we actually, in the X-Factor issues, we we do get a lot of fun interaction with uh, Rain and her, her old pals from the New Mutants who are now X-Force. There's a fun little fight where Rain and Feral kind of go head-to-head, and uh, Rain really puts her in her place, which I love. Uh, they even test her loyalties, and eventually she stays loyal to X-Factor and this new life that she's putting together uh, with that team. Eventually, we learn that it wasn't Cable. It was, in fact, Strife, who looks exactly like Cable, uh, who who had done this assassination. And we also learn that Strife had um, hired someone to track down Apocalypse. There's this whole like side plot with Sinister, where as Cable is impersonating, or excuse me, as Strife is impersonating Cable, Sinister is impersonating Apocalypse, uh, and the person who's impersonating Apocalypse, Sinister, he hires the Dark Riders, who are uh, a team not quite like the Horsemen, but a team that is loyal to Apocalypse, uh, to track down Gene and Scott and kidnap them, which they do. Uh, but by this point, a Strife has done some stuff. It gets a little confusing because there's like a double cross and a triple cross where it's like Sinister posing as Apocalypse sets up Strife. So the Dark Riders think that Strife was uh, impersonating Apocalypse. And so they actually go and not resurrect because he's not dead, but they like awaken him from like a regenerative like sleep that he's in. And they're like, yo, hey, Lord Apocalypse, like there are people out here impersonating you. And so strife attacks and like almost kills apocalypse. And so the dark riders switch their allegiance. Um, like sinister tried to, to kill strife. I, there's all these double crosses and all this eventually strife kidnaps Gene and Scott takes him to the moon, tells them that he's here for revenge because they've ruined his life. That was also his reason for going after apocalypse. Like he tells apocalypse that like you, you did something to me when I was a child and you ruined my life. And that's why I'm doing this. And uh, eventually he, he takes Gene and Scott to the moon 
and it's all locked down and only members of the Summers line, the Summers and Gray lines can enter this facility. So X-Factor and the X-Men blue team, as well as Bishop from the gold team, like they've tracked down Strife to the moon and Havoc's able to enter because he's close enough to Scott but not close enough. So like he's able to enter the facility, but then like immediately passes out. There's all this sort of stuff. Eventually it ends with Cable seemingly sacrificing himself by dragging Strife through a time vortex that he has Cyclops open whilst on the moon. Um, And by the end of it, due to some dialogue, Gene and Scott are thinking that either Strife or Cable is baby Nathan who had been infected with the techno organic virus as a child and sent to the future to grow up. They don't know which is the original. They know that one of them is a clone of the other and that one of them is possibly Scott and Maddie Pryor's son, baby Nathan. So uh, like, it's an interesting story. It's, the artwork is very uneven. It was brand new artists. Some of them were fairly stylized. Like the artist on the three X Factor books was Jay Lee, uh, who I think is a very talented artist, but it didn't really like it doesn't mesh well with Peter David's writing style. And so like I, there's a lot of, of sequences in the three X Factor books in particular of this 12 part storyline that even though they're fun to read because it's Peter David's writing, and and even though I enjoy Jay Lee's artwork, it just doesn't really fit together. Some of the characters, they just look a little wonky, uh, not really quite what I'm used to, and so maybe it's just a bias. But um, again, the the storyline itself is fine. Uh, Everything kind of unfolds in the correct order. There's not really a whole lot of plot holes. There are some disappointing aspects, like we don't actually get any solid confirmation of who Cable is or who Strife is that was promised. And again, there are certain characters throughout the 12 issues that end up behaving out of character because now they're in books that they usually aren't in. They're being written by writers who don't usually write those characters. Uh, I do have to say, I, I did like Peter David's take on a lot of the X-Force members although i think his warpath was a little subdued as was his siren but like i actually really liked his feral she was very feisty and i liked when rain put her in her place and i really liked the way he writes cannonball he, he writes him as just like a very earnest uh but heroic dude who is going to do the right thing and his take on boom boom is also like she's very fun i, I think by this point she was still going by boom boom uh, but yeah, she's, like he wrote her really well too. Uh, we didn't really get a whole lot of the X-Men in his books. We got some Bishop, we got some Wolverine, we got some Storm. Uh, you know, Wolverine at this point is typical 90s Wolverine, which is Slash now, ask questions later. And of course, Bishop by this point was still a big question mark. So there wasn't really a whole lot and none of his origin or anything was really built into this storyline. So Um, I can't really fault Peter David for like not really exploring any of those um, other X-Men characters. But again, I, I, I did like his take on a lot of the X-Force stuff. And, and of course uh, his X-Factor is, is fantastic. So I, I don't even know if I would say the three X-Factor issues are the best of the, the 12 issues. I think it's just kind of 
a little uneven. Some of the storylines with like the blue team are really good. The ones that follow X Factor around are really good. The ones that follow the gold team around, not so much. There's like a whole subquest with Archangel is like slowly being taken over by Rage and like he wants to kill Apocalypse, but then he decides not to uh, for some reason that it just it didn't really add up. It's like, oh, he's a good guy and he can't kill Apocalypse, so we, I guess he won't. Uh, it just seemed like kind of spur of the moment. There was some other stuff like the I think this was the storyline that introduced the Dark Riders. They're really not the best characters uh, as far as like X-Men villain teams go. Like they're pretty low, uh, pretty close to the bottom. Like I'd probably put them up there with the MLF as far as like their look and their whole shtick. Like they're not really the best. Uh, they're not even as good as the Nasty Boys. But then again, the Nasty Boys being written by Peter David is a huge plus. Uh, and the Dark Riders didn't really seem to fit that. So, oh, well, so that that's Executioner's Song in uh, in a nutshell. Like I said, I didn't really want to cover the three X-Factor issues out of context because they don't really work. None of them work as standalone issues because they're not. They were, you know, plotted out and designed to be part of a 12-issue story. And I didn't really want to cover all 12 issues because this is, this is not an Executioner's Song podcast. This is a 90s X-Factor podcast. That being said, uh, there is some some traumatic moments, you know, almost losing the heart and soul of all the X-Books with the, with an attempted assassination of Xavier, uh, seeing members of your team like turn against you with the whole all the all the X-Force stuff. Um, there wasn't really any Magneto stuff, but there's, just, you know, Apocalypse is always traumatic. Sinister is always traumatic. Strife, you know, he, he does all kinds of terrible things throughout the course of these 12 issues. And so that actually sets up issue number 87 of X Factor, which, like I said, I think is the single best issue of the entire original Peter David run. And it also introduces a new artist to the series who kind of takes up the mantle from here until I don't think he goes all the way to issue 100. Now that I think about it, I think that was Jan uh, Dorsema who did like those last few issues with J.M. DeMattis. But I think Quesada comes in for like a solid 15, 20 issues somewhere around. Well, well, like a solid 10, 15 issues, something like that. If he comes in at 87, yeah, maybe like eight or nine issues actually now that I'm counting it out. Uh, but either way, it's some good stuff. So let's jump into X Factor 87. So issue 87, written by Peter David, art from Joe Quesada, inks from Al Milgram, colors from Marie Javins, and lettering from Richard Starkings. Um, so the concept of this issue is after the traumatic events of Executioner's Song, the members of X Factor are required to meet with a professional therapist, uh, just to make sure that there's no lingering PTSD or or anything like that. I really love the the cover of the issue where um, in the foreground, you see someone sitting in a chair and you kind of see over their shoulder and they, they almost look bald. So it's like almost an implication that it's Xavier. Uh, and then the rest of X Factor is like facing this person and they all look like battle ready. It's great. I, I love this cover from, from Joe Quesada here. The issue starts 
with um, kind of like a, a few issues back when when the issues started with Rain's World, you know, where she was like hallucinating. I want to say that was X Factor eighty five. That was the uh, or not eighty five. Sorry, um, eighty. No, 75, no, 76. Oh man, I'm drawing a complete blank here. Um, it's the one where during the Incredible Hulk crossover, like rain gets knocked way far away. I think it was 76. Um, so she wakes up and, and she's like having that hallucination of, of rain's world. And like Alex is there and, and Polaris is there and everything. In this case, it's rain and Simpy. So um, another Ren and Stimpy reference from Peter David. Uh, they even like kind of, do a little joke about the happy, happy, joy, joy song, only it's mutant, mutant, angst, angst. Um, and, and then after that, it's like two pages, you know, where it's like being silly and everything. And then it cuts to rain on like the therapist couch, you know, and she's sitting there and she's talking to, to the therapist. And, and he's like, you know, why do you think you have these, these vivid dreams and everything? And, and, She's like, oh, I don't know. Like, you're the you're the shrink. Like, aren't you supposed to have have the answers? And so he kind of tells her, he's like, well, you know, there's a couple of different schools of thought. Uh, generally, when people have really vivid dreams like that, it's because of you know an underlying insecurity. And he's like, perhaps because of all the stuff that's been done to your brain, you've kind of lost parts of your identity, parts of your personality. And so you're kind of latching on to aspects of pop culture that you found relatable or whatever. Uh, and she's just like, Oh, I, you know, I, I guess. Um, and then, so he's like, I, I want to ask you another question. Like, how do you, how do you feel about uh, authority figures? You know, um, you, you seem to have a lot of respect for authority. Tell me about some of the authority figures that you that you admire. And, and so she, she's like, well, there's, you know, there's havoc, the team leader. Uh, you know, I think he's great storm, although she's, she's a little bit distant, you know, professor Xavier. Um, and so then he's like, how did you feel when you were, when you saw Xavier injured? And she's like, I was terrified. It was, you know, the, the scariest thing that I, that I, you know, ever seen. Um, and so he, he asks her, you know, like, uh, he's like, you love the professor in a way, don't you? And she's like, yeah, He's like, and do you think that he loves you in a way? And she's like, yeah, I, I'd, I'd like to think that. And he's like, how about Havoc? And she gets real quiet. Um, and then she's like, yeah, I suppose in a way. And he's like, you know, what way? Um, and she's like, you know, in a way that uh, if I'm not around him, it hurts. And uh, he's, you know, it's, it's it, being around him makes me so nervous. And like other things that aren't proper for me to say. And so at that point, the doctor is like, oh, well, you know, is that uh, what about the man who raised you? You know, Rev Reverend Craig, did he love you? And she gets like she goes, you know, hybrid here. And she's like, no, I don't I'm not going to talk about him and all that. And he's like, you know, just a thought. But uh, like it might be your way of trying to make up for the love that was denied you by your very first authority figure. And so he's. Rain just kind of, she's like, wow, you know, and then it, and then it ends, it goes to the next character. So it, it's, it's a way for Peter David to really kind of peel back some of the layers and uh, really give like a new, a new aspect to these characters and like how their dynamic has worked and everything, but also letting us like peek behind. 
there's a lot of humor in this issue, but it's a lot more like character driven. It's not just like silly one-off lines from, from Guido or Jamie or anything like that, or like, you know, meta references of, of Peter David winking at us as we're reading the issue. Uh, it's a lot more like heartfelt and everything. I do like the, the Quicksilver one. So he comes in and he mentions like, uh, you know, it's a, it's an odious task of having to deal with, a a therapist it's idiotic government regulations and everything uh and he even quotes the the why they have to do it he's like after a mission deemed traumatic enough all team members are to attend counseling sessions and he says that it's nonsense and all that uh, <laughs> uh he he brings up the fact that uh you know pietro is very arrogant and everything and and pietro is like yeah well you know i'm i'm very proud of it i i, I revel in it like you know, it's, I've got to do something. And so as, as he's talking to Pietro, he like has him solve a Rubik's cube and he has him complete a jigsaw puzzle. And he's doing that all while he's talking, you know, something to keep him busy, something to keep him occupied and in the chair so that the doctor can talk to him. Um, he's asking him why he's so arrogant and everything. And, uh, he, he asks him, he's like, so one of the reasons why you're arrogant is because like, you don't think much of anyone, huh? And Quicksilver's like, no, not at all. And he's like, does that include yourself? Like you, you don't think much of yourself. And Pietro says like myself, most of all, like I hate everybody, but I hate myself the most. So the doctor counters like, so, so you feel inferior. And he's like, uh, no, I don't feel inferior whatsoever. Uh, but I, I hold myself to the highest of standards. Like I hold myself to a standard so much higher than I hold anyone else. And so like, that's why I hate myself, but I don't feel inferior. Like I, I hold myself to the higher standard because I'm better than everyone else, but I still hate myself because, you know, I hate everybody. Um, they also ask, uh, he asks them like why he doesn't wear uh, a, an X Factor uniform. He says he hasn't been offered one. And he asks if there's anyone on X Factor that he feels friendship or affection towards. And he answers, you know, none of your business. <laughs> and so he asks, so the doctor at this point is like, all right, man, like what makes you tick? And I love the way that uh, Quicksilver explains his, his, his like haughty attitude. Like the reason why Quicksilver is so angry and so short with everybody and he says, and, and some of my younger listeners, you might not be able to relate to much of these, but even I, as a as a millennial, can relate to quite a few of these, uh, quite quite a few of these things. So he says, "Tell me, doctor, have you ever stood in line at a banking machine behind a person who didn't know how to use it, or wanted to buy stamps at the post office, and the fellow in front of you wants to know every single way he can ship his package to Istanbul?" or gotten some counter idiot at Burger King who can't comprehend Whopper, no pickles. And the doctor's like, yeah, I've, I've been in those situations. And Pietro says, how do you feel on those occasions? And the doctor's like impatient, irritated, a little angry. <laughs> and, and Pietro says, precisely, because your life is being slowed to a crawl by the inabilities or the inconvenient behavior of others. It's not a rational or considered attitude to have, but there it is. Now imagine, doctor, that everyone you work with, everywhere you go, your entire world is filled with people who can't work cash machines. 
I'd venture to say, doctor, that you too would suffer from irritability. And it's like, wow, like, okay, like that is a completely logical and legitimate way to explain someone like Quicksilver. Uh, they they portrayed him a little bit differently in the movies. They they almost made him seem like more indifferent or disinterested, but it's still the same concept, right? Where it's like he's moving at such a fast speed that everyone else, even though they're moving at a speed that we would all perceive as normal, it's an incredibly slow process for someone like Pietro. So again, like I really do like the way that they did Quicksilver in the movies. I would have loved to have gotten like angry, sarcastic, sardonic, even um, irritable Pietro. Um, but I still like the way they did it better than the way they did it in Age of Ultron, where they just made him like really cocky. Like, yeah, Pietro's arrogant, but like he's an arrogant jerk. He's not like playfully arrogant and like competitively arrogant. It's not like, hey, let's have a contest. It's more like I'm better than you and we don't even have to try because I've already I've already won, you know, like that's Pietro's attitude. So I just really like this. By the way, the whole time he's saying all this, he finishes this 1,000 piece puzzle of a snail. <laughs> so after Pietro, next up is Polaris. She is very reserved throughout this whole thing. Like her little sequence here, we actually dive into her self-image and um, it, it's, it seems more of like how someone would assume like a typical working girl in the nineties would behave where it's like they hate their body and, and they have a really poor body image. And I feel like this is probably like the weakest of all of the different takes on the characters, different psychological issues. Like I would think that Polaris would not necessarily have physical issues with her physical appearance, but rather problems with her thought process and that sort of thing, considering she's been messed around with in her mind. But then again, if you think about when she was possessed by malice, she really did go through uh, like a physical transformation where she was like seven feet tall and like super muscular and like just really big and bulky. And so maybe Lorna's like, you know what? I can handle the mental anguish, like whatever. Um, I'm, I'm dealing with it and I'm happy and, and it's fine. Um, but the image of seeing her in this, like this frame that was so much larger and broader than what her, her body had been up to that point, maybe that did give her this, this kind of like a complex where she's overly critical of her physical appearance. Um, but either way, like, the few issues where where she's talking to the doctor in this, it all seems to be focused on the fact that Lorna seems to think that she's overweight or that everyone around her perceives her as that way, even though she's not that way anymore. So again, like it could be an insecurity based on when she was possessed by malice, but to me it just still seems like the um, the the easier take and like a lot of these other ones he really does peel back some layers whereas this one seems to be a lot more superficial and on the surface 
So after Lorna is Guido, I really enjoy Guido's whole um, exchange with the, with the doctor. Um, so he's like sitting there in the chair. He's like super relaxed. He's like playing with a yo-yo. It's awesome. And uh, the doctor, <laughs> the doctor's like, uh, so Rain said that you warned her about me. And he's like, I don't know if warned is the right word, but you know, I told her about, uh, about you, you know, the, your type, your, you counselor guys. And the, and the doctor's like, oh, so you've had experience in counseling. You, you've met with therapists before. And Guido's like, oh yeah, you know, guidance counselors and stuff back when I was a kid, uh, you know, I was always getting into trouble up until my, my mutant powers first surfaced and all that. So the doctor asks him, he, he prods him a little bit. He's like, you know, do you, do you remember what happened that the first time, you know, like when, and when you stopped getting into trouble and Guido's like, Oh yeah, totally. It was a, you know, red letter day. Like you, you got to understand, like I wasn't always the suave and sophisticated dude you see before you, like in junior high, I was a, I was still a geek, a, you know, a nerd. And we actually get a flashback where Guido would get like 100% on his papers that he would turn in and on his assignments and all the class thought he was an egghead and they didn't like him and everything. So they started teasing him. So in order to get people to stop teasing him, he decided to become, uh, you know, the class clown, a little bit of a smart aleck. He started playing pranks on his teacher and stuff like that, you know, kick me signs and that sort of thing. But it still didn't really, he still didn't really fit in. Like, even though he was cracking wise and all that, people still didn't like him. They still thought that he was a big geek and everything. And, uh, you know, one day after school, it, it all came to a head. There was a, a girl that he was kind of making googly eyes at and, and she winked at him. And it just so happened that she was like the girlfriend of like the school bully. Well, the dude sees this little exchange. And so he goes over and he decks Guido right in the face. And by this point, you know, Guido's had enough. And it's been years of him being uh, bullied by these guys. And so he snaps a little bit. He like attacks the kid. He like tackles him down and he's punching him. It's like Ralphie in a Christmas story, you know, when he finally starts fighting back against, uh, oh gosh, what was his name? Like Scott Farkas or something like that. You know, the kid with the, with the hat and everything. Uh, so he like tackles him and he's like, just, you know, bashing him in the face and everything. And all of a sudden his mutant power manifests, like his right arm like grows up it's massive like he's this little kid like a little middle school kid so 12 13 14 years old you know little skinny little guy and all of a sudden his right arm just like balloons up to this massive size he says it was the size of a buick and uh he he runs he freaks out he runs out into the street like not knowing what to do and he gets hit by a school bus and, and he took the impact of that too. And like that also made like the rest of his upper body get disproportionately huge. And he says it, it took a few more impacts over a couple of days till I figured it out. But by then the damage was done. At least I stopped it before it got worse. And then he, he confesses something to the doctor here that he hasn't confessed to anybody else before, which is to this day, I'm in constant agony constant says i don't let i don't let on of course because the guys like i said they'll feel sorry if they know i'm hurting so i make with the jokes to cover it and uh yeah he's like that's why i have this uh this you know devil may care 
attitude. That's why I'm always cracking wise. He's like, cause I'm in so much pain all the time. Uh, and like, even the, uh, even the doctor's like taken aback. He, he does a double take and he's like, man, I, I had no idea. So I really love that little, um, like look back, you know, that little peel behind the glasses and see what is really going on in Guido's brain. I really like it. Cause up to this point in, 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 in X factor, he's just been like the big dude who cracks wise, you know, we know that his body will uh, distort if he doesn't like release the energy that he absorbs almost immediately. Uh, but we don't realize that even now he's still in pain from like his original mutation. So after Guido, we get Jamie, the, the final member of X factor, multiple man. And, uh, the doctor does some, some wordplay with him here. You know, Jamie's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm here to, to tell jokes and stuff and, and have a good time and all that. And so the doctor is probably thinking like, because he's got so many multiples of himself that perhaps his psyche has fractured a little bit. Maybe he's got a little bit of DID going on. Um, disassociative identity disorder, formerly multiple personality disorder, you know? So he's like, all right, let's try some, uh, some word, um, what is it called? Word association, right? So the doctor says black. Jamie says Motown. Doctor says up. He says and away. Doctor says over. Jamie says the rainbow. Doctor says in. Jamie says sane. And the doctor says alone. And Jamie says hell. And the doctor says like, are those the responses that really occurred to you or did you manufacture them to get a reaction? Because it started hopeful and it ended in, in despair. Um, and, and the Jamie's like, I, I really don't know. And the doctor's like, well, it seems like maybe you're trying to get people's attention. Like maybe you want attention on yourself. And, and Jamie's like, Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I sure do love attention and all that. So, so yeah, he's, he kind of admit, he actually admits that he, that he does like attention. He goes on to say, like, it reminds me I'm alive and it, it gets people to notice me. And, and when people notice me, it helps to make sure that I'm not alone. So a dude who can be surrounded by a bunch of different people that are all just copies of himself really feels alone. Um, and then we come to Havoc. Did I say that Jamie was the last member of the team? Like, we haven't even talked about Havoc yet. That's hilarious. Um, the Havoc is probably the least interesting of all of these. Mostly, he's just kind of talking about how he he's a little jealous of his brother, but not really. Mostly, he admires his older brother, uh, but mostly he admires him and loves him and looks up to him. Uh, and he realizes like why Scott's been the way he's been. And it's, it's, it's a lot of responsibility to lead a team and have lives depending on you and everything. Um, and he admits that he's like, ever since he took leadership of X factor, he just feels like something bad is going to happen. Like it's just this feeling in the back of his mind at all times that something is going to happen. Um, and then for whatever reason, um, after Alex leaves, the doctor's like just kind of in there by himself and he's whistling and Lorna comes back in. And she, again, it's with the, with the, the physical image of herself, you know, and she says, 
I want you to know that I've dropped 15 pounds in the last month. Even before my jaw got busted up, I was dieting, exercising, pumping up, and I think I look great. And she like opens her trench coat and she's got this new costume on that is a lot more revealing um, than the one that she usually wears. You know, her shoulders are bare. It's a better view of her legs and other parts of her. Um, and she's like, so doctor, you know, what do you think? And he like, he drops his pen. <laughs> Uh, and she just walks away saying, some psychiatrist. And I like it. We're we're here at the end. We're in the last two pages of this issue after we've talked to every member of the team and really got in, gotten into their minds and seen their like driving insecurities. And last up is Val Cooper. She's not really a member of the team, uh, but the doctor's like, you know, you were in the field, so we got to ask you too. And she's like, yeah, sure. Like, no problem. It, it helps me. And, you know, it's knowing your people is is the, you know, that's the key to being in charge. And so the doctor's like, all right, well, you know, why don't you tell me about your people? Tell me about Rain. And uh, she says, typical teen, had a crush on Alex once, but that's gone. She's completely forgotten it. Good kid otherwise. Lorna, very bright, very open, very together, not afraid to let people in emotionally. Pietro snotty and for no reason still i think he's working a bit to be one of the group he'll probably be asking for an ex costume anytime uh guido you know party guy totally hedonistic just cares about himself real wiseacre a guy who's feeling no pain uh, jamie a loner really doesn't need a lot of people why should he he can make all those dupes probably the most self-sufficient besides alex and then he's like what about alex and uh, she says, totally confident as leader. He's really grown into it, totally out of his brother's shadow. Um, and I just like that she comes in and just completely gets everything wrong. Like she just takes them at surface value for, for what they are. And we just got to see that Rain is, she's not over Alex. Um, she she really still is, is, you know, completely enamored with him and, and all that. We see that uh, Lorna is very not together. She's got all kinds of self-doubt, not just mental, but physical as well. And that's kind of stunted her emotionally. Like she's not gotten as close with Havoc as she's wanted to. Uh, Pietro doesn't really care about being part of the team because he doesn't like anybody. Uh, and he actually does have a good reason for being snotty. Uh, Guido is, is in constant pain. So he's not a party dude. He's actually in a lot of pain and, and masking it. Uh, Jamie is super alone all the time because when you have only yourself to keep you company, like what else would you feel? And then Alex, uh, still lives every, every minute feeling like his brother is judging him and that everybody else is judging him for not living up to Scott's image. You know? <laughs> so I just love that she gets everything wrong. I really love this issue because it's not uh it's not an action packed issue at all. It's very it, it's all talking heads, you know, they're all talking to each other, but like Joe Quesada does a really good job of moving the story along visually despite the fact that everyone's sitting in a chair talking to another guy that's in a chair. Like it's really great and uh Obviously, I summed a lot of this stuff up. It's really worth reading 
to get a lot, there's a lot more to these answers and a lot more to the questions that are being asked. Like the, the way the issue flows is really great. Uh, so I, I definitely recommend checking out X Factor 87 if you can. I really, I remember the first time I read this issue and I was just completely blown away because I had never read an X-Men issue quite like this ever. And I just, I loved it. I thought it was so awesome. And it's like, he just nails the voice of every single character. Yeah, just love this issue. In my opinion, single best issue of this entire run. Uh, but that brings us to the end of today's episode. Um, so this is it for the penultimate Talking GC, the X Factor show. Come back next week for the final episode of March and the final episode of Talking GC, where we cover the last two issues of the ongoing X Factor series that were written by Peter David, issues 88 and 89. And then also the uh, the main story from X Factor Annual number eight, which is like the forty page story, uh, which uh, actually ties up a few loose ends from Peter David's run. So, yeah, a, a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, like I said, tune in next week for the uh, closing out of Talking GC, the X Factor show. If you like the show and want to keep the conversation going, you can reach out to me via email at talksnicked at gmail.com, T-A-L-K-S-N-I-K-T at gmail.com. If you are listening to these episodes on Spotify, uh, you may have noticed a new feature when you go to each individual episode. There's now a question that I can pose to listeners. Um, and it's a fun way to interact. You you can answer the question and I can pick up to like 10 answers um, and, and display them. So you can actually see your answers displayed in the like episode, uh, not site, but like in, if you click on the episode itself and go to like the episode information, um, you can see up to like 10 answers. So uh, looking to get some answers on there. So if you are a Spotify listener, check that out. Uh, most of the episodes that have dropped this month have different questions. So, so yeah, go back and, and, and look at answering those, not just talking GC, talking snicked, but also snicked tunes. Um, if an email or answering random questions is not the level of interactivity you were looking for, that's cool. You can check the show notes and there should be a link in there for the talking snicked discord small community we have a lot of fun over there just talking wolverine talking x-men sharing our love for these characters and different you know things that we collect and all kinds of stuff so uh check it out if uh, you're looking for something a little bit more personable um, it's not like this massive community that's going to take up all your time or anything like that just a, a fun place to get together with a few like-minded folks and uh talk wolverine and the x-men so again check the show notes for the link to join the Talkin' Snicked Discord. Um, I've already mentioned, but there's one more Talkin' GC coming out. Should be dropping next Wednesday. Uh, and of course, just keep staying tuned because we've got uh, at least a few more Snick tunes already recorded and uh, should be coming out over the next few weeks. And we've got people scheduled for the weeks after that. So 
should be solid few weeks of releases for Snicktoons as well as we work our way through season four of X-Men, the animated series. Until next time, you blork. <laughs>